Coming to you from the front lines of America's fight for freedom, it's Matt and Brett Doster with America in View. What this world needs is a few more red dates. So people ain't afraid to take a stand. What this world needs is a little more respect for the Lord and the law and the working man. We could use a little peace and satisfaction. Some good people up front take the lead. A little less talk and a little more action. And a few more rednecks is what we need. Happy holidays to you. Wishing you a very Merry Christmas season here from America in View. We're with Brett and Matt Doster again this morning where we are waking the woke by resurrecting their brains with truth, the Constitution, and a little redneck common sense. we got a great show for you today. Um, you know, it's probably going to be a little bit more of a variety show this morning, Matt, at the beginning. But I do want to talk about this uh, sort of state of the presidential race, at least on the Republican side. And uh, we got a little bit of, a, I think, a special uh, opportunity here at the beginning of the holidays uh, just before we get into the Iowa caucus season and in the New Hampshire primaries to maybe talk with people about how they should be evaluating their presidential candidate. And then I want to finish this off by having a an honest conversation with our audience about what it means to be a conservative. I think that may help them uh, with their own evaluations of these candidates and maybe even help them with evaluations about themselves. So I think we had a great show. But before we get started, Matt, how was your Thanksgiving? Filling. <laughs> yes, it was. It was great. Had a lot of time with family and uh, too much food, but uh, all was good. And then there was a lot of football over the weekend. Um, Florida State fans were happy with a with a big win over Florida, despite being um, down a few key players. Uh, so that was that was fun. Yeah, it was kind of scary in this first couple of quarters. Yeah. Definitely was. It seemed like all the worst uh, worst case scenarios were going to come true, or at least it was unfolding that way. But um, the Seminoles played well, and um, you know we saw Rodemaker get hurt and then come back in. It was sort of an inspirational moment for a lot of people, and saw the scores happen as they did. So yeah, it was all good. I think it was inspirational for him. I think he needed to get his bell rung to get him excited and get him fired up about trying to finish that game off. But he did a good job. It was good. You know, I got to tell you though, uh, you know, speaking of football, <laughs> it's kind of one of my pet peeves. Have you noticed how, as you get to the end of the season, <clears throat> sometimes you have these obnoxious fans who are uh, getting more and more into their team. Some of their teams didn't start out so well at the beginning of the season. Now they're finishing very well, and uh, you guys have probably all experienced this as you uh, meander through the Thanksgiving holidays, but. There's nothing wrong with being a football fan. We all love football, especially in the Deep South. I mean, football is a way of life. But I love how these fans live and die, and they weep, and they get depressed uh, when their team loses. And then they are exuberant and start lording it over their friends and family if they win or if their team wins as though they had something to do with it. It's kind of quite the joke. I don't know if that's been your experience. Of course, we all cheer for the same teams, Matt. So for the most part, we don't have that kind of conflict, but it's annoying when you get around friends who are like that. Yeah, it's one of the uh, irrationalities of our age. And, um, 
you know, presumably going back for hundreds or thousands of years, uh, people have been this way. I don't know what, like, who, you know, the Colosseum in Rome, like, who who were they cheering for then? Was it was it a team-based situation? Did they have uh, referees that called penalties and got booed and all that sort of thing? I mean, who knows? I think they got killed. Yeah. The stakes were higher. <laughs> exactly. You know, you can argue that maybe a fan in the stands does have some kind of participatory impact on the outcome of the game, um, you know, to a certain extent. But, yeah, if you're sitting at home on the couch, you really have nothing to do with it. Yeah, I know. I know. It's uh I mean, look, I I kind of yearn for the days. In fact, I've uh talked to Matty Rowe and uh, John around here about having a show here coming up where we might try to have some uh members of the Bowden family uh, join us. We've got a client, his daughter, uh who is a state attorney over in Pensacola who's a client of ours. I might like to try to get her on to just talk about the age-old sort of stoicism in the American football coach and the American football fans. You know, they would wear their ties and their coats to the stadium. The coaches would wear, and you remember Bear Bryant would wear a coat and tie. And uh, if they won, he had a stony uh, face. And if they lost, he had a stony face. And people were just expected to do their job and be professional and shake hands and go home. Yeah, and they were paid a lot less. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. Yeah, the – I mean, this is a topic for another day, but the uh, I, th- I think it was the Miami quarterback announced he was entering the transfer portal, and uh, you know, everybody's chasing these dollars. These college kids get get money in college. Used to be at least the premise was that they were playing for um, the opportunity to go to college. Now they're they're playing for other reasons, and they're they're switching sides when it becomes more lucrative or have better opportunities to go somewhere else. We're definitely seeing a version of the sport that is dramatically different than what it was. And next year, we're going to have an expansion of the postseason, which is um, a real pet peeve of mine. I think every time this happens, it diminishes the value of the college football regular season, which was for a long time the the best and most dramatic uh, spectator sport you could watch because the regular season meant so much. And there's this idea that if you just keep making more and more postseason games, that somehow the sport is better, which is, I think, the opposite is happening. Um, so, yeah, it's it's fun to watch, but it's definitely a different sport than what it was a few generations ago. But here we are uh, in a typical college town in the Deep South getting sidetracked talking about football at this time of year. This is naturally what we do, but we are not the Jeff Cameron Show. And uh, we need to get back to talking about politics. So there was a lot of political news uh, that was made this week. It was kind of interesting to see. Uh, I, I don't know if you were watching, but there was a lot of international news. The Ukraine-Russia war kind of ground to a halt. God sort of showed that he's bigger than bombs and planes and uh, heavy artillery because there was a massive storm that went through southern Ukraine that sort of brought a ceasefire about for a short period of time. Uh, you see what's going on in Israel. <clears throat> the Democrats are in absolute... Uh, desperate disarray uh, as a new slate of polling numbers came out showing that that uh, Biden is trailing Trump even in key Rust Belt states right now. Uh, some of that has to do with um, uh, minor party candidates like uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who is sucking oxygen away from Joe Biden. But still, uh, at this juncture, if the election were held today, Donald Trump 
would beat Joe Biden by about five to six points based on the aggregate of polling out there. So it's uh, really interesting to see them sort of running around like chickens without heads. Even Hillary Clinton sort of hinting that she would be interested in uh, being offered up as a quote-unquote sacrificial lamb to take over for Joe Biden, which I don't see that happening. What do you think? No, I don't. Uh, I mean, I think the the left or the Dems would be foolish. I mean, if if they're trying to switch horses midstream, that's not the horse to switch to. She's already lost to Trump once, so um, and has lost twice. Yeah, in the contest. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, uh, Real Clear Politics has a uh, they they aggregate the polls. It's nice. It's a just an easy place to go and to see sort of different if you're keeping score with polling. Uh, they also have the betting averages, which I always think is interesting because it shows where the collective wisdom of uh, of the betting public is. And the betting average has Trump up nine points over Biden. Um, and then um, they're the, the, the betting for Democrats, the second place candidate is Newsom. And then after that, Michelle Obama. And then right there with Michelle Obama is uh, Joe Manchin, which I think is um, – I don't think uh, it would it would require a convention kind of a brokered deal with the convention at this point because I don't think uh, I think the schedule is passed for people to actually be candidates in the elected primaries. But it's just interesting to see what the collective wisdom is out there. Yeah, and it it is. I mean, the collective wisdom, of course, doesn't really mean anything right now. But it's just uh, I think it's the drama of watching the the uh, fear in the eyes of the Democrats and the eyes of liberals who think that they're. Uh, you know, hold on the White House may be coming to a close. And, you know, anytime you see that, there's always a fear about uh, what's going to happen with the U.S. Senate and whether they're going to lose seats in the House. Now, go ahead, Matt. Yeah, I mean, definitely the Senate is the biggest issue where, I mean, it just seems uh, almost impossible for the Democrats to hold the Senate. Um, I, I say that, I mean, there was supposed to be a surge in the last election that never materialized. But as of right now, there's just some key states that it does not seem like the uh, left is going to be able to hold. So, yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. So there was some big news on the Republican side of the aisle, and Nikki Haley got the Koch brothers and the AFP endorsement this week. I want to talk about that going into the next segment, uh, Matt. So you guys hold tight with us. Remember, we're going to be telling you at the end of the today's show what it means to be a conservative and help you evaluate these presidential candidates. Stick with us for Section 2. Don't go anywhere. America in View will be right back. Counseling the woke back to freedom and rational thought. It's Matt and Brett Doster with America in View. All right, talking about the presidential preference primary. Matt, it really seems as though this thing has come down now to three candidates. Technically, it's four. Eh, Technically, there's a few more out there, but there's only four that really have any horsepower. Uh, It's Donald Trump. It's uh, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, and Chris Christie. And I would say Chris Christie is kind of a footnote at this point. I think it's really down to three. And Nikki Haley apparently uh, was able to convince the Koch brothers and Americans for Prosperity, which is a massive organization that is um, largely engaged with candidates on a grassroots level, although they will do some fundraising and spend some money, but mainly will help with grassroots. Um, But it appears that they have uh, gotten behind Nikki Haley. And uh, they are now trying to use this as a line of demarcation 
to suggest that she is the chosen one as the non-Trump candidate uh, to go out there and uh, try to win this nomination. And I think one of the big questions is, does this really give her the push that she needs? And what does it mean for our own governor, Ron DeSantis? I would be interested to know if AFP, uh, is this based on some of the polling out there that suggests that Haley is is the best general election opponent to Joe Biden? I don't personally buy some of the polling because I think it can be superficial. It can, it can be a reflection of, uh, you know, maybe just conventional wisdom that more female voters will vote for a female candidate, which isn't always true. Um, so, you know, were they looking at that polling? Uh, do, do they genuinely like her better? Do they see flaws in DeSantis? You know, what what is it? It, it definitely seems like it was a calculated decision on their part to say, hey, we're not going to support Trump. They made that clear very early uh, a, a while back and uh, seem to be sitting on the sidelines, keeping their powder dry, ready at some point to come in and, and support a candidate. And um, I think if you were just being a political pundit and trying to say, well, who's rising and who's falling? It seems like Haley is rising more than DeSantis is. But as you and I have talked about, he's got the resources and, and kind of the resume to uh, sustain himself for a longer run, deeper into the primary states. So I think it's all going to come down, like we were talking on a couple shows ago, it really is probably going to come down to Iowa and what that result looks like, which of these two, between Haley and DeSantis, which of these two candidates um, do better in Iowa. And then that presumably leads to other things in the other primary states and then potentially just trying to get to that point where it's a two-man contest, um, you know, one of those people against Trump. Yeah, I want to clarify something. You said that they made it clear that they weren't going to support Trump, and you kind of seemed to indicate that it, it, that was a recent decision. But AFP has really not been on the Trump train <clears throat> ever since the midterms of his first term in 2018. They kind of made a decision, the Koch brothers made a decision to depart from Trump. And a lot of that uh, is um, a result of his hard-nosed border policies. Uh, the Koch brothers want a, an immigration reform package that will essentially recognize undocumented immigrants that are here already in the United States. They want some sort of limited amnesty. And this is, of course, anathema to most of the Republican base. It's something that Trump has not embraced. It's something that DeSantis has not embraced. Uh, so I have to figure that Nikki Haley has told them what they need to hear to make them feel that she is the person to do it. I think they also are looking at winability. I think they have real concerns about Trump's ability to win in the general election, and they think that maybe Nikki Haley does give them the best, the best shot. However, uh, as you and I have already discussed, what today's best shot looks like may not be the best shot a year from now. So I'm I'm still kind of, uh, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very uh, dubious about Nikki Haley's long-term prospects, but at least for now, this was kind of a shot in the arm for her. However, I'll, let, let me just give a, uh, an analysis here of this endorsement. So currently, uh, as it stands, there's three candidates, Trump, DeSantis, Haley. All of the non-anti-Trump wing of the Republican Party has been looking for another champion. Ron DeSantis early on was thought of as that anti-Trump champion that could be the guy that would go all the way. But here's the problem with most of that anti-Trump wing of the party. They're actually ideologically very moderate. In fact, some of them are just as happy with Democrats winning. 
And they don't like Trump's hard-nosed conservatism on the border. They don't like his uh, anti-establishment attitudes. They don't like his, uh, let's just call it foreign policy isolationism. And so they have, uh, you know, been looking for this, this new champion. And uh, Ron DeSantis has offered them, I think, all those leadership skills as a, as a strong governor that they would think would be successful. The problem is that Ron DeSantis holds a lot of the same views Trump does and is uh, just as conservative. In fact, I would say that Ron DeSantis is perhaps ideologically more conservative than Donald Trump. I don't think Trump is that ideological. I think he's a very visceral uh, type leader who, who reacts to things in the moment. I think that uh, DeSantis has more of a, an ideological reason for making his decisions and is more of a visionary. But I just think he became, uh, DeSantis became unacceptable to that non-Trump wing. And so really the only person left standing is Nikki Haley. Yeah, speaking of moderates that are okay with Democrats, uh, Mitt Romney earlier in the week said exactly that. He said he would support, he could see himself supporting any of the other Republicans for president except for Ramaswamy maybe. And then he said also that, he could vote for a number of the Democrats, too. Any of them would be an upgrade over Trump. And I think that's pretty reflective of where that kind of squishy middle is on this uh, on this Trump question. But you're right. Uh, DeSantis is much more of an ideological conservative. He he definitely has some of the same strains of populism that we see in Trump. But he's uh, he's got a, a lot more of that grounded base of a, of a structure of thinking and a structure of how to approach government with conservative values. The thing about Haley that I would say, I think every Republican presidential primary contest that we've seen over the last at least 20 years, there's always a moment where as the as the elections get closer, there seems to be somebody who's peaking a little bit. And a lot of the pundits and a lot of the um, Vegas money starts to go after that particular person we saw in past elections, you know, you see like Rick Perry hit the scene and become everybody's favorite. <laughs> right. And then you see... Three weeks later, by the way, you fell apart. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I, I think Haley is in more command of her rhetoric than than he was, but we even saw Haley stumble on that with her thing about um, regulating social media accounts. So I, I, I'm, I'm with you. While there may be some superficial indications why Haley might be an appealing candidate, I just don't think that the... Um, the the core substance is is maybe not there to sustain her as a candidate all the way through. The AFP money can certainly help, but it it's not going to be the um it's not the only thing that's needed to be a successful candidate. The um the other thing that I would say about Trump, you know, Biden is aged and has lost the confidence of most of America. I would say even a lot of Democrats, but he does have the power of incumbency, right? He has that power of um just the establishment of, of of being there, of representing the left and the Dems and all that. But in a way, Trump— I, I, call, it, I call it the Air Force One effect. Sure, yeah. Um, hopefully if the staircase isn't around, it, it looks better. But <laughs> right. Trump has power of incumbency as well, right? He, I mean, he's not the most recent incumbent, but he's an incumbent in his own right. I see somebody like Haley just—they're they're not having the legs to sort of continue on— in a uh, hard-fought contest with an incumbent, whereas Trump has that, just the heft of having been there, his outsized personality, his ability to get earned media and attention on everything. Uh, it's just a totally different equation. 
Yeah, agreed. I think that uh, it's it's interesting to watch what I would call the short-term play versus the long-term play. So uh, you and I have talked right now about the trajectory for Trump, and um, I've made no secret that I think that Trump has some issues, and I've also made no secret that of all the non-Trump candidates, I think our own governor, Ron DeSantis, is uh, he's the guy. With that being said, I on based just based sheerly on the numbers right now, unless there's a cardiac event or some other major disturbance in the force, it, it looks like Trump is on trajectory to win, and all he has to do is keep doing nothing. Uh, but he's sitting, you know, forty-five percent in Iowa, uh, with similar percentages in all the other states, and I just don't see it changing anytime soon. Maybe after Iowa, it jiggles around a little bit. But with that being said. You have to think that some of these candidates have got to begin thinking about, okay, what happens after Trump? So let's say Trump is the nominee. What happens uh, in 2028 when we're coming back around? Well, if I'm Ron DeSantis, the one thing I want to do is maintain my integrity as the conservative in this race because that's the only way that I get another shot at this in 2028. Right now, Nikki Haley has woke Wall Street. She's got the, let's just call soft on life or soft on abortion Republicans, and she's got now the soft on border policy Republicans. I think it's a short-term play for her, but it's catastrophic for her long-term endeavors. And I think that Ron DeSantis will win long-term as opposed to short-term. So stick with us going into the third segment. We're going to evaluate some of these presidential candidates and help you evaluate them and then talk about what it means to be a conservative. Never fear, Matt and Brett are here. Or at least they will be. America in View will be right back. From the front lines of the fight against socialism, it's America in View. All right, we're back for the third segment today. And uh, Matt, we were just finishing up talking about uh, Nikki Haley's endorsement by Americans for Prosperity and the Koch brothers, whether this really shakes up the presidential race. And this is beginning to be that time where regardless of whether you're the Koch brothers or whether you're just a plain old redneck like me uh, here in Tallahassee, Florida, uh, I have to begin to evaluate these candidates and think about who I'm going to vote for. Because here's one thing I'm certain of. There will be an election in Florida. Now, the reality is, is that a lot of the shooting may be done by the time we get to Florida. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. But uh, there will be an election. We will have to uh, vote. And as it stands right now, all of the major candidates, whether they drop out or not, will be on the ballot. And they will have to choose, Republicans will have to choose who they will vote for for president. So um, I'm just curious, when someone in your family comes to you, Matt, being a practiced political consultant, as you are, and they say, who should I vote for in the Republican presidential process? Do you just jump right in and give them your opinion, or do you ask them questions that they should be using to evaluate the candidates for themselves? Was well, it my family the same as your family? Sort of. You have extended family that's not quite my family, although I think we all claim each other by marriage. I got you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I my basic reaction would be to Try to try to figure out what are what are the issues that are important to the person who's asking me that you know what what kind of a candidate are they looking for? 
Unfortunately, as we all know, in this media-drenched world that we live in, a lot of times the information that people are operating off of isn't necessarily the most accurate. And a lot of times it may emphasize or de-emphasize different things just based on whatever is the you know, so-called best story out there. So a lot of times there's some misconceptions. Um, and I think it can be useful to try to plow through that with people. Um, but, you know, for most people, I think they think that they're basing it off of some sort of um, principles or objective standards. There's always a likability issue with the individual person who's running mm-hmm. that sometimes is less acknowledged. Sometimes it's very overtly acknowledged. Sometimes people say like, you know, hey, I just, I do love Donald Trump or I hate Donald Trump or I, you know, really like some other candidate, um, you know, out there. And, but I think that's always the undercurrent is who do you like? Is it somebody that you could actually see yourself hanging out with, being social with? Uh, you know, is it the sort of person that you think is is fundamentally decent? Have you ever heard, have you ever heard people using these vague terms like, um, well, I'm a Reagan Republican. Sure. Or I'm a Bush Republican. Or I'm a Reagan you Democrat. Know, I'm a, you yeah. Hear that sometimes. Yeah, you hear that sometimes. That's right. It's sort of a vague labeling, but it gives you a sense of like what they are. And uh, I'm not really sure if it answers anyone's questions, but um, yeah, anyway. I I definitely think that. I mean, it's a way people people really. One of my theories is when you go to the ballot box, you're really voting for yourself. You're voting for who do you, which of these candidates out there do I think. I want to be associated with? Do I want to be willing to tell people I voted for? Um, When I was in Washington, D.C. 20 years ago, D.C. is a very liberal place. And so the conservatives that I knew, the the few conservatives that I knew, you could see their behavior when talking to someone else. This was in the era of George W. and John McCain, right? So John McCain was the more acceptable guy to be for if you were a conservative trying to curry favor with liberals at the cocktail party. Mm-hmm. So I would, I mean, almost verbatim, you could hear this conversation go on where someone would say, maybe they're, you know, I'm a Republican and there would be this look of horror from the other person. <laughs> You're a Republican. Someone's and, hands frozen in the uh, peanut jar. Yeah. yeah. And then as soon as they say, You're a Republican with that, you know, horror, the follow up would be, Well, I like McCain. Mm-hmm. It was a way of. Mm-hmm. Showing people like, Softening hey, I'm, I'm not, yeah. I'm not a total, you know, not a total right winger, which is just funny to think about how that, how much everything's changed in that time period. So, um, yeah, I, I think what I would recommend people to do is to base it on some sort of principle. What, what do you believe about government? How do you, what do you think the role of government ought to be? Uh, which, which uh, candidate represents those philosophies best and could affect the changes that are needed to, to, uh, you know, advance that kind of a philosophy about government. And you and I have talked about where DeSantis fits into that world. I I think a lot of other people might just be a lot more instinctive and they say, well, I like what Trump is doing um, as far as pushing back, uh, fighting for America over over China, over the left in our own country, in in various places like that. And they just like the personality, the force of personality and um, his his personal agenda. It appeals to a lot of people. Well, what I thought I would do is maybe offer you up, Matt, some questions that I try to use when I'm evaluating potential candidates and give this to our audience as an opportunity for them to maybe write these things down. We can post some of these questions to our Facebook page so they have them. But I would encourage people to use a similar uh, questionnaire 
uh, for lack of a better description, whenever they're thinking about who they are going to vote for, not only for president, but for other down-ballot races. And um, this does require some homework. It requires homework in that people actually go to someone's website or their Facebook page, maybe they grab some of their literature, and see what they actually believe or, or what they're saying they believe or what they're all about. But here are some, here are some thoughts in these evaluations. Uh, number one, I'm just going to go through my, maybe my top six or seven here. Are they clean? In other words, are there any major scandals that look like they were real scandals in their background that may knock them out of contention or may destroy their ability to hold office at some point in the future? If you don't know, just check the no box. <laughs> exactly. And and the reality, Matt, and this is the sad this is the sad state of affairs in politics today. It seems as though everyone has a scandal or a projected scandal from their opponent. And sometimes sifting through that takes a little bit of, again, a little bit of homework, but it's important if you're going to be voting, casting your vote, it's a very valuable thing to have to make sure that you know that. Uh, the other question I have is, what is their record? Uh, do they have a record of accomplishment? Now, you know, when you're evaluating someone running for the state representative, their record of accomplishment may simply be that they held a job and, I don't know, you know, didn't get caught for stealing while they were working for the local grocery store. You want someone who's honest and someone who's going to be a little bit more like you. But I think whenever you're evaluating someone who's running for president, uh, you know, you don't want to just... I mean, first of all, constitutionally, you can't even elect anyone who's not at least 35 years old, but that's probably even still too young in today's times. But you want someone who's actually been uh, engaged in life and has done some things and, uh, you know, has a record that they can point to. Um, I see some of these characters who filed to run, and I think to myself, you know, just being a congressman for four to six years doesn't necessarily mean that you are ready to do the job for president. It's a massive endeavor. Uh, and then along with that, and can they do the job, uh, th- this, this plays across multiple uh, levels or considerations. Think about Joe Biden right now. Joe Biden certainly has a record of accomplishment. He was in the Senate. He's been vice president. He's been president. But now people are actually asking the question, can he do the job? Because of the joke you made earlier about stairways being too close or stairways not liking him. The reality is people are now beginning beginning to have real doubts about his age, and they're beginning to have real doubts about his uh, competency levels. So who's doing the job, Joe Biden or his staff? Uh, another question is, uh, can they connect? And this goes back to that likability factor that you mentioned earlier. You know, people during the Clintonian era said it's the uh, would you want to have a beer with him test. Uh, I, I think sometimes that's a little bit overplayed. The you know, would you like to have a beer with them? I don't really know how many people want to sit down for three or four hours and watch ball, you know, a ball game with the president of the United States. And uh, when I think of some of my um, college buddies who I enjoy watching ball with, I would never want them to be <laughs> president of the United States. So that may not be the best litmus test. But the the key question there is, can they connect? Meaning, can they get to the podium? Can they articulate a message? Can they shake hands? Can they kiss babies? And they, can they portray themselves in such a way that people feel that sense of connection with them. The other question, of course, is can they win? Some of those factors are, can they raise the money? You know, can they uh, you know, actually put a campaign team together? Can they uh, structure themselves in such a way that people 
look at them and have this impression that they are a credible presidential candidate. But then the last question I would ask is, what do they believe? And this goes into that whole what it means to be a conservative question, but what do these candidates believe? And I think that gets a little harder to dice and slice in the midst of a campaign because many of these candidates hire uh, public relations teams like you and me and others out there, many of our colleagues, to sometimes help them project a message in the moment that they may not really, really have embraced their entire career. And so it's important for people to do the homework on that. But what I do want to talk about in this last segment as we get into that is evaluating what people believe. And to do that, you got to evaluate what you believe, whether you're a conservative and whether your candidates are conservatives. So stay tuned for the last segment. We're going to talk through what it means to be a conservative and put some meat on that bone. On the front lines fighting the insanity of the woke, America in View will be right back. Where men are men and their ladies just want to love them. It's Matt and Brett Doster with America in View. All right, guys, we're back for segment four where we're going to be talking about what it means to be a conservative. Now, we've been doing this show since July of this year, and I have to say that this last 10 minutes of this discussion, Matt, between you and me is going to be so critical and so pivotal because for those of our listening audience, I think that this is going to be an important, instructive moment, not only for today's show, but projecting forward on the way that they are going to be uh, evaluating candidates with us on into next year as we get ready to turn the corner and get into presidential season. So, you know, Matt, my question to you is um, there are all kinds of people who say or all kinds of labels. There are socialists. There are libertarians. There are communists. Uh, these are, of course, not what you would call classical conservatives. But I don't know, going back to our previous discussion, uh, in this age of labeling uh, where people tend to say, well, I'm a Reagan guy or I'm a Bush person, uh, to your point, you know, uh, Republicans in the past who wanted to maybe soften the edges a little bit with their liberal friends would say, well, well, I'm a Republican, but I'm a McCain, I'm a McCain Republican. Uh, some people would say I'm a Romney Republican these days, but there's not a whole lot of people who will own Mitt Romney anymore. Uh, but with that being said, you know, a lot of this labeling, I think, uh, makes it difficult for people to understand where their views fit into these categories and, um, you know, I think it might be uh, good for us, Matt, to sort of talk through this and uh, unwind for people what it means to be a conservative. Yeah, I think there's a lot of confusion about it. I think it, just to be blunt, I think a lot of people really don't know what what they what they think or uh, even necessarily what the terms mean. I think part of that is just because they are used by so many different people to mean so many different things. Uh, I think the media tends to use the conservative label to mean resistant to change. Mm -hmm. um, that it means it's it's someone who will change eventually, but it's going to do so at a slower pace. And uh, they tend to be on the, on the side of liberalism and what they call progressivism, which is toward change. Uh, let's go for the new thing. Let's let's change the traditional ways of doing things and so on. Um, you know, I think you and I grew up in an era where conservative was a was a term that had been developed in the kind of Barry Goldwater, William F. Buckley, Ronald Reagan era. 
in which a lot of um, there was an appetite not to just be resistant to change, but to change things for the better, to to reverse some of the things that had happened under FDR or under the LBJ, the Great Society, the expansion of the welfare state, and so on. And so there there was a real appetite to um, push back against um, Keynesian economics, redistribution philosophies, to revisit constitutional protections, to to uh, remind everyone that rights were something that we understood to come from God and only to be protected by government, not to be created by government. So I, I think the, that's your more classical conservative position, kind of a, a movement conservative position in which, um, you know, in the Reagan era, there was a, there was a thought that the clock needed to be turned back or, um, you know, just that positive changes needed to happen in government. These days, of course, we have a lot of populism, which I, I probably just cut you off about to say that. No, I I was getting ready to just comment on what you said about progressives and liberals. I think sometimes for younger people, especially, and for those in our audience who are younger, maybe in college or early adults, uh, it, it feels exciting to say I'm a progressive or I'm a liberal because maybe that means that I'm for change and I'm for progress and I'm for moving things forward. But uh, most of the classical liberals today, what I would call radical liberals, are really interested in only one kind of progress, and that, that is the progress in making government bigger. And so really, you know, that's why conservatives who are elected tend to be more change-oriented, but it goes back to what you said, which is sort of the old Reagan mantra of rewinding the clock, getting us back to our foundations. Uh, and you talked about populism. Let's just talk about that for one quick moment, and then let's let's try to define for our audience what it means to be a conservative. But populism, it kind of bugged me. Um, he's not really my colleague. I guess he's a uh, forebear because um, you know we're doing a a small radio show and podcast. But I mean, Sean Hannity's one of the greats. But it, it bugged me back in 2016, whenever Trump first came on the scene, and he was sort of making an apology for Trump. He was calling Trump a populist conservative. I mean, that term, populist conservative, feels like an oxymoron or a twisting of, of terms. You can't be a populist and a conservative. In your mind, Matt, what is a populist? Oh, good question. Um, I mean, obviously, it's um, rooted in, in some sort of popularity. I think it's being a representative of what the, what the popular will is of, of the per- current moment. And I think where I see it manifest itself is that in the past— a classical conservative would retreat from a particular fight if the classical conservative said, well, this is not the domain of government. So even if I feel a certain way and some other forces out there feel a different way, this just isn't something that government should be involved in. So we should pull it out of the public domain altogether. You hear that argument less and less, almost, you almost don't hear it at all anymore. Uh, And now what you see more is a willingness by Republicans or by the right wing to use government power to uh, either accomplish what they want or to um, counter the the forces on the other side. And, you know, it's not, it's, it's something that's had some value. There's been some value to that approach, but it definitely is not classical conservatism. So we don't have that much time left. So I want to attempt to define this for everybody in very simplistic terms so that we don't you know, over-intellectualize it, but gives people a framework for what to believe and how to evaluate candidates and evaluate what candidates are saying. So, Matt, at the founding of this country, 
Our founders started off with the premise, number one, that there's a God, that there's an intelligent designer. They didn't all agree uh, on the personal work of Jesus Christ, but they agreed uh, in, that there was a God, there was an intelligent designer, and that man was created with certain inalienable rights. The primary thing he was created, and he was created in freedom. And since man was created by God, man necessarily preceded government. And this is why, just as a sidebar, this is why most communist governments that put government as God are atheistic, because you cannot have communism (laughs) with a firm belief in an intelligence designer, and you can't have capitalism and freedom and free markets without acknowledging some sort of intelligent designer, because if we all just came here by chance, there really is no way to evaluate how one government's better than the other. But that's and, a sidebar comment. And not um, only are they atheistic, but they're mandatory about it. They, they prohibit faith or religion. Because God is a threat to their power. <clears throat> so they started with God. We were created in freedom. And that we, as free individuals, men and women, ceded certain individual rights or certain freedoms to collective government to maintain order and to maintain commerce and to be able to make sure that we can live and breathe without killing one another. Yeah, and I'll, I'll bicker with you a little bit. I wouldn't say ceded, but I would say delegated yes. certain powers and responsibilities. It's a much better term, much better term. So with the creation of this country, the constitutional framework, the separation of powers, everything that was done, federalism, everything that was done was put into place to basically safeguard as much freedom as possible, knowing that this was the, the primary uh, quality or the primary um, treasure that was given by God to man. And, uh, and so there's a distrust for government. There was a distrust for too much power being in the hands of one person, uh, one man or one woman. And, uh, and so therefore they put these controls in place. And what conservatives really are, what classical conservatives are, at least in this country are, are people who acknowledge those three basic truths, those, those ideas about the origination of government in this country and say, look, there is universal truth. There is a God. We were created in freedom. We created this government to protect that freedom. And uh, as much as possible, we want to maintain and hold to the original framework that our founding fathers created. And uh, that's why, Matt, in the midst of these presidential debates, I get so frustrated when I hear Republicans, and I can name many of our different candidates, talking about child care provided for by the federal government or education provided by the federal government, because every time there's a federal benefit, there's federal control, and we lose that freedom that was originally envisioned by our framers. You're absolutely right. And the, uh, you know, the very important premise is that our rights are rooted and protected in the law. Uh, it was not a situation where the king was going to be preeminent, nor the majority, uh, which oftentimes is lost in the debate. Here we are at America in view, conserving freedom. That's what it means to be a conservative. Well, we are protecting freedom. You guys have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to America in View. For more information, go to AmericaInView.com.